0: So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Geld actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, m as restricted stocks, various investments, and more. You can keep your hard earned money our their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster so again you know if you're interested on in this go to joingelt.com uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy so again you know join All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. You know, we're going to be talking about his uh, journey, you know, as an operator, his journey as, you know, someone that has worked for other companies too, and then also his journey as an investor from every single angle of the table that you can think of. And I I find that, you know, we're going to find his story quite inspiring because he's done it. He's built, you know, a pretty uh successful company, you know, Unicorn, you know, in a tier two city, you know, also we're gonna be talking about that. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Jack Greco, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So born in Rochester, but uh, you grew up in a farm town. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and then uh when I was getting ready to enter grade school, my family moved to a little farm town in the Finger Lakes called Canandaigua. Uh, it was a big change from the city, um, but I enjoyed it a lot. You know, it was uh, a slower pace of life, but it was. My, my father was an entrepreneur; he had opened a store out there. You know, and uh, it, it gave me kind of a, a unique view of what it's like. You know, an urban, very urban, moving to a very rural environment. So, um, you know, grew up working for my father. He was an antique dealer. Um, you know, also worked on a farm for a little while. So those kind of, you know, the real solid of the earth type techniques and, um, you know, morals and values that you learn, you know, baling hay and being on a dairy farm, you know, kind of shaped me and put me in the trajectory. I think it was a hardworking guy that, that I am today.
0: And what about being able to experience your father being an entrepreneur? I mean, how was that, you know, also for you to, see the ups and downs, you know, that that he was perhaps, you know, going through himself.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't just see it. I I felt it. Right. I mean, you know, there were, you know, rich years and there were lean years. Right. Um, And and you notice that by the number of presents under the tree um, or you notice it by how how much he was there versus working, you know. So uh, being a dad myself now, I have a seven year old son um, and in a good relationship, you know, I it's it's interesting seeing that um we are all human right and but these things that happen there is no there is no division between work and and personal life when you run your own business like you could try to compartmentalize how you spend your days but they directly affect each other so much um so it was good and you know i do so much work with early stage companies you know ideally vc backed startups you know you still realize they really are also in addition to that small business I mean, every business starts as a business of one or two or three, if you have co-founders. Um, and so I saw what it was like. My father never had any partners. I happen to taken a different mode in life. Everything I've done, I've usually done with somebody else. Um, I learned a lot of that because I saw when the times were tough, there was nobody to help share the yo. Um, And so just experiencing that growing up and, and, and then being able to be part of it from the ground up in his, in his uh, store and in his business um, really gives you appreciation that, you know, it takes everybody to contribute to be part of this.
0: So you've been a hustler your whole life. Where does that drive come from?
1: Uh, I think it came from my father, you know, I mean, he was an antique dealer originally and it's a very much a, a, like a hustle based business, right? I mean, you show up with a pocket full of cash and a brain in your head and you hope that at the end of the day, you end up with a pocket full of more cash and a brain in your head that's pretty much intact still. Right. So, it was a game of connections. It was a game of networking. You know, uh, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. I was born in 83 turned 40 later this year. So, you know, if you look at the chronology of technology, you'll know that, you know, I grew up as like cell phones started to come out. My father was one of the first ones to have one. Right. But just it, it didn't replace that pure need to be able to network and build and be able to know where to go. Right. As an antique dealer, he was a middleman. So, I mean. It's funny, you know, I do a lot of marketplace work and and marketplace is really the difference between people that have something to get rid of and people that want it. Um, And my father was just, you know, an earlier traditional version of connecting those two. Um, So that kind of, that, that hustle and drive just comes from being able to see the opportunity between two things that aren't already related and aren't already connected. And if you do it the right way, you're able to make a living, you know, really bridging the gap.
0: So in your case, you ended up uh, studying economics and quantitative finance. And then after this, you know, like you, you know, one thing led to the next and you end up, you know, in the, in the venture uh, world, no, being a consultant. So how do you land, you know, there, what was that uh, experience and, and what happened next?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you pretty much try and say yes to every opportunity you see, you know, uh, I didn't start off in economics. I started off going to school to be an architect. Um, and it just turned out I actually had to spend a lot of time working with my dad's business in uh in undergrad running it for a little while. I actually ended up running it for a year and a half while he was out of commission. And um, you know, you you can't you cannot uh cannot graduate with a degree in science if you're not gonna make it to any of your lab. So, you know, economics brought me to quantitative finance. I, I got my MBA, you know, at the same place I got my undergrad degree at the University of Rochester. And for me, I, I wanted to be able to have a practical tool set. You know, I had seen so much, so many people, right, just being around small business, small business owners around each other, and they lack this fundamental understanding in a lot of cases of kind of the physics behind the way cash moves, right? I mean, it is the blood flow of every single business. So when I went to school for quantitative finance, it was kind of going to school to understand the diagnostics of the way cash moves and financing and leverage and debt and everything, you know? Um... And it really, when I was getting my MBA at Simon, that's the business school U are, I learned what venture capital was. And I was used to being a risk taker. Right. I was the kind of guy that had bought product. And the first time I went down to New York City and was selling, you know, fake Oakley sunglasses and Movado watches at lunch at school because I thought it was an opportunity to make money. Um, and I said, all right. I said, I said, venture capital is just if this really is the Wild West, if this really is where like the biggest ideas are coming from. This meshes together the reason I originally wanted to be an architect, which was to be a creator, with what I'm really good at, which is understanding business. So I jumped into it, basically functioning the equivalent of, like, think of a poor man's consultant from Bain or McKinsey, except working with a regional VC um, in the upstate New York area. You know, um, again, you just keep saying yes to everything. So I said yes to basically being willing to work there for six months for almost no money. And then I said yes when they were bringing on, you know, an international portfolio, um, commercial, uh, the commercialization of government and military technology out of um, Great Britain, and so you just keep saying yes, and you keep taking shots, and you know, in my 20s, that took me around the world, it gave me experience in a handful of industries that are completely unrelated, like material science and optics and photonics, and um, you know, and biotech, and it, you know. You, you you take all of that and then you start to, you know, in your mid and late 20s for me, five, six years into it to understand what you really like. And what I had realized was, you know, this is all great. I would build this massive amount of very unique, very experiences and I was ready to focus on something, you know. And then that's what, you know, at the conclusion of my 20s, beginning of my 30s, that's what kept me from instead of focusing on 10 things as a consultant, focused down to become a founder.
0: So then let's talk about, you know, what that looked like, because that was quite successful, you know, with ACB Auctions. So how did the idea come together and how did you meet the co-founders?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, um, it, when I was doing the work I was doing in my 20s, I kind of I realized places like Buffalo and Rochester. And you'll hear this theme later. Right. Um, you know, they, they were great cities, um, entrepreneurial in, in their essence, although those two cities are very different in the way they become entrepreneurial. And their vision and their long-term goal. But they didn't really have the connection to the rest of the venture community, right? I mean, this was in the the mid and late 2000s, going into the early 2010s. And um, so for me, I kind of played this role as anybody that was starting anything I was willing to talk to. I was single throughout my 20s, so that afforded me a lot of time to be able to get to meet people over breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, didn't matter. Um, I, I, I learned early in my life, there's no excuse to take a meal by yourself. Um, so I kind of really embedded myself with what was going on in the Buffalo and Rochester startup communities, which is where I had family, which is where I spent time. Um, and you know, I had met a founder, uh, a guy with an idea, Joe Neiman, um, that just lined up. It felt like it hit so many different places from what I've always done, right? It was in the automotive space. And though I didn't have experience in automotive, it was in wholesale and I did have experience in wholesale, you know, basically the, the B2B interaction that happens um, you know, price and goods. So like, I understood that. And the idea was, Hey, could we digitize the physical wholesale auctions of cars? So basically when a dealer sells a car to another dealer, and I thought this is the same thing as an antique dealer selling another, uh, an antique to another antique dealer. Like, yeah, I've been around physical auctions my whole life. I've been to a couple cars, some antique, some fine art, cattle, all sorts of stuff. And this intersection of this like economic mechanism, which was an auction, it really excited. Me. And I didn't know what, what it could become, but one of my good friends, uh, who ended up being the third co-founder, Dan Beneschewski, like he, I knew he sat in a catbird seat, seeing a lot of different tech, and it just happened to be at a time. It was a time when I, you know, I, I started a family. You know, like I said, I'm a dad of a seven and a half year old boy. Um, I knew I wanted to focus down. My, my grandmother lived out in Buffalo. I was her primary, not her primary, but a very active caretaker for her. I said, why not give it a shot? So again, it was just saying yes to an opportunity. Um, and, you know, three of us in November of 2014 kind of agreeing to do this, then began to actually grow. And we had a lot of lucky breaks along the way. And that's, you know, what ultimately resulted in the company going public in 2020 and being the first real tech techie to corn in, in in Buffalo.
0: And, and we'll talk about that you know, in, in just a little bit, but you know, just for the people that are listening to be able to really understand it, what ended up being the business model of ACB auctions?
1: Everybody experiences marketplaces, right? Amazon, eBay, any place where there are a handful of people on both sides of the table and a piece of technology exists in the middle that helps connect them. But most of the, most of the marketplaces that we see, like I just mentioned, are B2C marketplaces. It's the way you know e-commerce. If there is a handful of different sellers on the back end that are a marketplace, you know. Um, so what does not exist that much is B two B marketplaces. So the way a business connects with another business are still done very traditional ways, you know. Um, so the automotive, the the wholesale automotive landscape, you know, thirty million cars get traded into a dealer every year. You know, you buy a car and they take your old one. And they give you some, you know, they give you a discount off the new car for it. And, you know, of those 30 million, let's say a third of them end up getting transacted to another dealer at some point. And a lot of that was done at either a physical auction, which was slow and incumbent, expensive and didn't really utilize technology. They were very much, you know, it was, it was part of, you know, regional monopolies or national duopolies. There was really two, two firms you know, two different businesses that are two different companies that did that. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of competition, and a lot of technology, but it was a massive market, right? Like 10 million cars times, I don't know what the average car is now, $15,000 a piece it made a really big market that nobody had really touched. And, you know, again, one of my co-founders or uh, Joe that from ACV, like he said he was a used car dealer and he felt this pain. You know, he was gone all the time. He was he was not able to run his dealership because he was at the auction trying to buy cars. And everybody had to do so much work to understand what was wrong with them. They're all used cars, right? They all have issues. They all have history. So we said, well, why don't we make a platform that levels the playing field on the information people have to bid on cars? You know, we'll put actual people out there that know how to look through a vehicle and create all the information that everybody gets to see ubiquitously. And then why don't we let them buy and sell on their phone instead of going to a physical location to do it? And that simple, elegant idea is the premise, the backbone, and you know the entire business model of of ACB, which you know you can look it up; it's publicly traded on NASDAQ now. Um, You know it's it's a successful company, but it was really an evolution on what was going on. It wasn't revolutionary, um, and it didn't need to be. Um, And I, I would say it was the fact that it was just a slight it was incorporating technology into an existing business uh, that people already understood you know we weren't trying to re-educate we weren't trying to change the way the world ran we were trying to add efficiency we were trying to add you know, clarity to what was going on right um we wanted the transactions to be smooth and simple and start to take advantage of some of these other digital products that were out there financing companies to start to offer digital products you know, there were different types of digital products that allowed you to do inspections on vehicles better. We thought, why not pull this together on one more? You know, and that's what ACV Auctions is. It's a place where dealers go and buy and sell inventory, you know, between each other in an auction platform
0: Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that, you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like 1x.tech with their advanced androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors, so really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They are also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the deal makers audience. Is one year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash dealmakers. And that is again go.tech forward slash deal So go get your own domain. I mean, as you were saying, the um the company right now is trading, you know, NASDAQ. You know, the market cap is 2.5 billion. So, you know, pretty. Pretty impressive stuff. Now, you know, when it comes to marketplaces, you know, they're, they're really, really tough because it's like launching two companies at the same time. I mean, obviously, you know, you're seeing this now as well on the investment side, and we're going to talk about that transition. But when it comes to marketplaces, you know, building really that supply and demand, you know, so that people can find that liquidity in it, so that they can find what they're looking for in a short period of time. How was, how was that, you know, experience of really figuring things out to make sure that, you know, it worked? you know, with ACB.
1: So, I mean, look, it's, it, it's a lot of holding in, begin- in the beginning, in the beginning. And you're right. It's like running two different businesses at the same time. I actually think it's like running three different businesses at the same time because a good marketplace, you know, there's a reason why buyers and sellers, you know, are interacting. There's a need, but that relationship between buyers and sellers still has to exist. And you have to forge in a relationship between you and the buyer and you and the seller in order. So it's really a trying to something. As opposed to a normal business where, you know, like let's say a, a, a SaaS business where I build a product, I meet you, maybe it's an enterprise sale, maybe it's a monthly sale, but like I signed you up and now we're doing business. This is very much like trying to throw a party or trying to get, you know, it's like chemistry, right? It needs to be the exact right proportions at the exact right time. So what's unique is it's as much psychology, it's as much, you know, uh, you know like, you want to look at the anthropological aspects of things, right? Because these are people, these are humans making decisions on both sides. So, you know, how do we change the platform so it makes it seem like, I mean, when we first started, I don't remember, maybe we put a couple hundred cars across the system the first month, which we were lucky to do. That. And that was because we had spent really five or six months of building up interest in this event that was going to happen. And we had gotten some good advice from, you know, a couple of mentors and advisors early on, like, make sure it's an event, make sure you concentrate the activity so it looks busy. You know, I mean, if you or I went to a grocery store, you know, and we walked in and it was the first day the grocery store opened and the aisles were basically bare, but they had some product there. You wouldn't look at what they had. You would look at what they don't have. And that's what commonly happens at these marketplaces. I want to be able to go and at least see enough quantity, right, that is that is real, right? I mean, like, and I'll explain what real means in a second, but like, you want to be able to see enough of the shelves being full, aka the shelves being full, that you're interested in staying. And when I say real, you know, it needs to be items and products that are the right items at the right price, with the right availability, you know, with the right understanding of what it is. You know, and so you really have to curate these. Again, it's like throwing parties. You have to curate both aspects of the environment. So, you know, I'll be honest, in the early years, you know, we were working very hard at making sure, you know, that, hey, you know what? We would call up Ray and say, Ray, we know you love pickups. There's five of them coming on the system. We're trying to launch them along the right time. You know, I'll give you a call right before the auctions come live. And we were doing everything we can to get people's attention on it you know and that's really the way that you have to get these things up and going. We were lucky in that we were regional. So like again, we launched in Buffalo, New York, and like our buyers and sellers were both from Buffalo, New York. So it made it easy and made, you know, us helping with logistics easy. If there was a problem, we could actually go there and see it. But once we got that built up, we started to do an we had an adjacent market, you know, strategy where we would then say, okay, how do we bleed outside of it? We didn't go from Buffalo to you know, Chicago, LA, Dallas, and Miami, you know, we went from Buffalo to Rochester and Syracuse, and Albany and Pittsburgh and Cleveland. You know, we were aware and understood that our product was big and heavy. You know, it was, they were difficult to move and they were expensive to move. And so we knew that dealers, we wanted to give them as much access and variety to what they had as close as possible to make our lives. So I, I think the best marketplaces find ways to to create that second and third tier relationship. We don't just better the relationship between buyer and seller. We get the buyer to have a relationship with us and the seller to have a relationship with us. And the weakest relationship is between buyer and seller, because in order for us to control and curate the environment, we want those relationships running through the two of us. So sometimes that means that, uh, you know, maybe a, a buyer doesn't pay us, but we make sure the seller gets paid, you know? And sometimes it means that, you know, the car wasn't what we thought it was going to be to the buyer. So while we handle it with the seller, we take care of it to make sure the buyer's happy. That's what I'm talking about in decoupling the relationship so that they both actually have relationships. With
0: so so five years in, you know, I mean, the company was rocket ship. You know, as we mentioned, you know, went public 2.5 billion. You know, right now we're 2,000 employees. I mean, five years in, you decide, you know, it's time to turn page. Why?
1: I had a young son. Um, I really wasn't spending a ton of time with him. Um, you know, I, Buffalo, though I spent a lot of time in it, isn't my home. And, you know, I I just made the decision this has gotten to the point, you know, this is being big and successful. We have been actively trying to hire. I was the CFO, COO, uh, and by and large, head of, you know, strategy and data analytics, you know, for the majority of my time there. And, um, I realized my existence as a founder was blocking the company from bringing in specific good talent in each of those positions. You know, I could have done one of them well. You know, I could have probably done one of them great, uh, but I couldn't do all of them. And I just saw that for some reason the recruitment process wasn't going great on the executive level. And I said, all right, like maybe the only way to fix this is just to completely remove myself. I want to be able to spend more time at home. I'd saved up a little bit of money. And I said, I'm also a founder. Maybe I'll go start something else. So it was really being able, it was a hard decision, but it was making the decision, like, I know the environment I want to be in. And I have, the success of this has created a climate or an environment, which is outside of where I really flourish. So, you know, it was a decision to, you know, I I stayed on until they they brought in an outside CFO. They hired a CEO shortly after that. Um and the company has done excellent you know I, I won't take any credit in that Um, but I will say that I think I removed myself as an inhibitor of growth and it's a weird thing to think right like you know you, you think of yourself as as a requirement and a necessity for this business I always thought of myself as the heart of it and you know it really it really took a lot of convincing you know and a lot of support of from people around me that you know my family and you know, friends, and even a couple of coworkers that, that really cared about me to say, no, like, this will, this will be okay. Um, it was a tough decision, but it ended up being the right decision. I've really enjoyed what I've done since
0: then. And you just said it now. I mean, you're a founder. So uh, being a founder, you know, obviously, you know, as a result, you know, for you, you know, what what you did is you started, you know, like getting more involved with tech stars, you know, mentoring startups and and also investing. You know, like, why going to the other side of the table?
1: well cuz i didn't like the the way the other side of the table was playing right i mean you know like it's a uh, you know like any like any entrepreneur um i saw an opportunity i thought you know i went through the experience right not cradle to grave but cradle to pretty close to grave you know from founding a company all the way to exiting it. and i just said there's a ton of opportunity like we're not getting uh, no offense to any of the investors i've been around but i thought there were better ways to help support you know like It didn't seem, I always wanted an investor that was in it with me. And so, like, I'd seen that with angels. Angels get that way, right? Angels are unsophisticated, don't know how to price deals, typically don't carry the clout needed to, like, ensure the success of the next follow-on round. But angels were willing to put their own skin into something, right? And I'm a founder, obviously. I, I live in the world of all my skin being in the game. And so when I left, I originally started being an angel investor, right? You know, I was like, all right, like, I want to help these founders. You know, I want to, th- this is what I was doing before as a consultant, but now I have some money and I'd rather create the next great CEO, CFO, COO. I want to be a kingmaker, um, you know, and ultimately, you know, write Some of the disadvantages I think we had was in a tier two city. You know, when we were raising money at ACV. We didn't know what a good valuation was because we didn't have peers that had gone out and made mistakes for us to learn from. Right? We were the ones that made all mistakes. I mean, we made a ton, a ton of mistakes. And so I said, all right. I said, if I start investing, it's really my way of saying, I want to put some money to build in on this relationship. And also, you know, I hope that it's a good relationship where I can at least share the war stories I have so you can learn from. It. So investing was almost just like one thread of a cord, Right. I invested. um, I became active. Some of them I would take an active role. A lot of time I would just be a mentor or advisor. And it allowed me to start to build this, you know, what I really wanted to be, which was just a connector, right? Like I love working in marketplaces because I think of myself as like a human marketplace, just a lot of the same ways my father was, right? Like seeing the buyers, seeing the sellers, being able to bridge them and hopefully being able to make and move past the point of me wanting to make a living. It was me trying to build an engine that was bigger than so I, I really enjoyed investing. I think I'm, I've angel invested. I've cut over 200 angel checks in probably 120 or 130 companies, 51 different geos. I'm super proud of that. Um, you know, and it's with people that I all had that, that, that all earn. I, I'm pretty easy to give trust, but they haven't lost it. Um, and they're worthwhile. They're, they're taking a worthwhile endeavor. And I think they're the right person to do it. Um, I did also do a lot of, Fund investing, because I thought, this is crazy. I'm going to blow all my money angel investing. What if I'm horrible and wrong at this, right? Even a man with my amount of confidence isn't that stupid. So I started investing in other funds also. And at this point, I think I'm in close to 60 funds. Um, while, I've, while I've wound down angel activities, when we started Far Out, which is the preceding seed um, venture fund that I'm a you know a general partner in, one of the, one of the founding partners in. Um, I've, I've kind of maintained a fund to fund investment strategy personally, where I'm going into other funds and honestly, it's to make friends and to learn from, you know, like it's, you know, uh, hopefully in 10 years, they're going to give me my three to four times my money back, which will be wonderful, but more so over those 10 years, I'll build a relationship and learn from. It. So it was, you know, versus what it cost everybody else to go to college. You know, I thought, well, this is, I'm getting, I'm going to make money and I'm going to get educated. And I think as much as you understand the other side of the table, I just didn't think there were a lot of these people in this brackish water between founder and investor, you know, and I wanted to be the one that kind of bridged that gap and could walk both worlds. So
0: Now, now as an investor on the angel side, you have much more flexibility.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? I mean, it's, you know, I, I uh, one of my first angel checks, um, if my buddy Colin Hurd's listening to this, right, like. I met uh, I I switch I swapped seats with a guy that was in an uncomfortable middle seat on an overnight flight. Um, and the guy ended up sitting next to Colin, you know. I I thought I was gonna sleep on it. I didn't. We ended up talking the whole time. He was in the middle of negotiating the sale for his business. It was one of my first angel my first real angel checks. I cut him a check basically when we walked off the plane. This is a guy I'd never met before. You know, a six digit check. It wasn't small. You know, I live in a two hundred thousand dollar house and drive a 2005 g right this is a this is a big check and you know you're able to do that like i can't even do that in the venture world right you know like if i take money from you like i've taken money we have about a little less than 20 investors in our fund right now i can't take their money and be that liberal with it i need to be more judicious it doesn't matter my gut was screaming do this That's the right thing to do. but yeah i mean as an angel i've covered um probably I don't know, at least platform type, almost every type of platform company you could be in. I think I'm in over a hundred unique industries. Um, so a lot of people would call that generalist. I just think that I make my decisions different than the industry and the platform. You know, I do a lot of marketplace stuff. I, lo- I do a lot of SaaS, primarily B2B. Um, so I trust that my my knowledge, set, my experience at growing a particular type of platform. You know, um, but yeah, you have a lot more flexibility and you get into creative stuff, too. I mean, I have bridged companies. I've given, you know, lent money to companies on debt. I've lent money to companies on a handshake. Right. It's all great stuff you could do as an angel. And the conversion from that, you know, really over the last year and a half, I've I've transitioned fully and now I'm a VC, you know, so the majority of the investments I'm making, you know, is me investing in my fund and then that fund going into companies. But now I've got, you know, I got an investment committee two very experienced complimentary guys to me that keep me from doing some of the dumb stuff. That's an angel. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes the dumb stuff ends up being the best, but more often than not weighted average is not. Um, But, and this goes back to that. You know, I, I think that when you focus on one thing for me, when I focus on one thing and I have a team around me that I'm, you know, equal partner in, like things end up going better. I do think two heads or in this case, three heads is better than one.
0: That's amazing. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Jack, and you wake up in a world where the vision of your fund is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Um, you know, if it, for the fund to be fully realized, it means that we are able to invest in. So we will have built a portfolio of great companies in places where we were able to add unique advantages to. Right, like, yeah, I mean, we're all great. All, all three of us are exited founders, so maybe we we're able to help the company itself. But all three of us came from, you know, townships of less than, you know, twenty thousand. Right, like, not that we're necess- not that we're necessarily going to, you know, small town America, but like, we're not overlooking it. So I would say the vision means we are investing in founders, and not because they're the hottest, sexiest thing in the world but because they're building practical, fundamentally solvent business models in places that are somewhat overlooked. We do a lot of what I call "n of one investing. So you might be a market defining technology. You know, it's doing things different than anybody else. Um, and we really like that, you know, and obviously if this, if the fund that we have can, we can start stringing them together into a firm and help, you know, be that poster on the wall of other firms like ours, you know, I think that's what success looks like. You know, it's, it no longer becomes you have to go to Acts to get funded. I think that, you know, AX should come to you. And that's honestly what we're trying to do with Far Out
0: So imagine if you were to uh, get into a time machine and you go back in time to that moment where you were 30 and thinking about, you know, launching something of your own. If you could give that younger Jack one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Yeah, um, I would tell him, you know, don't forget how confident you are in what you're doing, um, but don't let that confidence turn into hubris or stupidity, right? You know, um, I think I think it's easy when you're doing something to, you know, entrepreneurs are great at quickly pivoting on new information, kind of like a skier can bounce around moguls when they pop up. But, you know, I don't always, I think there are times when you have to cut against the grain too, and it you have to make you have to know when to when to be aggressive and cut into what's existing and then when you kind of got to go with the flow too. Um, and I would say be very careful who you take advice from them. because just because someone is willing to give you their time doesn't mean that you should be giving them yours.
0: Got it. Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: Um, so, I mean, we, we have a, a website, farout.vc. VC. Um, everything goes directly to the partners. Um, so you can, you can go through there. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, happy to do that. I'm, I, I you know, I'm very good, very responsive. I of the messaging that goes with that. Um, those are two really good ways to do it. I, I will tell you, don't lead with, Hey, I'm trying to raise money for this. Like do a little bit. And this goes for any intro you're trying to make to, especially an emerging manager like me like try and find something either from what I just talked about or any of the other stuff out there that you can relate to and make sure it is a good connection. You know um, I do a lot of job, I, I do a lot of work in ecosystems. So if you happen to be a connector or, or well connected within, you know, a city that's got maybe one or two professional sports teams, but not all four of them. Right. Like reach out to me. Right. Um, I've, I've found, I've built really great relationships. I want to invest in people I have in a relationship with. Um, And I build really great relationships amongst people that share common interests and common threads, like any other friendship in the world.
0: That's incredible. Well, Jack, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. It's been great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com